So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. You know, I wasted a lot of money just throwing it around on extravagances and, you know, stupid investments just because, you know, it got me, I don't know, new friends or, or you know, whatever. And I, I would have been, my, my friend Bruce is a, is, is a very, very, very successful guy. He's an investment banker. And Bruce is, uh, shops at Value Village. <laughs> it's still a great sport for him to get by on as little as possible, you know. And I think, you know, if I had it to do over again, I would be a little bit more like that, I think. I, I'd be a, a, a little bit more smartly generous. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got John LeFave. John, I'm looking forward to this one. Thanks for making time to do this. It's a great pleasure to be here, Jess. Very nice to meet you. Well, I, I've got a lot of questions, but I think the best place to start would be telling people about uh, kind of the exciting life you've had to this point. And then I want to talk about some some principles going forward. Do you want to give people a bit of the backstory? Well, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I'm the person least likely. I was, when I was a kid, I had this dream that everybody maybe had. You stick your hand in your pocket and there's always some money there. You don't have to. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the person least likely to have earned never having to check my bank balance. I, I got pregnant when I was in university and I, I didn't have much uh, science or math, so I had no choices but law. And I I entered the practice of law and did that for maybe a dozen years or so. But in doing that, I ran into a guy, Steve Lawrence, and he, he was an entrepreneur and a very bright one. And uh, he started, he thought, it would be a good idea to bring some innovation, some responsibility, and some reliability to the online money transfer system, particularly the one that services online gaming. If we could figure out a way to get th- those people their money safely and to trust you, that he thought that would be a good little business model. To cut to the uh, finale in 2003, we started NetTeller in 2000, netteller.com. That's the internet, that's the con- conjunction of the word internet and bank teller. And I made that up myself. You can in in 2003, NetTeller went calm on the London Stock Exchange, and we achieved the market capital of around two billion bucks. And when I hit my peak, I was uh, my net worth was around you know it was on the high side of 300 million American. Shortly after that, we were all arrested. And I wound up charged, but they were threatening three 20-year offenses, basically you know conspiracy racketeering, and I. I I don't even remember what the third one was, but eventually I pled guilty to um, a lesser offense that was a five-year offense and wound up doing 45 days in prison, forfeited, forfeited uh, $40 million, my partner 60 and my company 140 million. So we, we forfeited a quarter of a billion dollars and now I'm on the beach in Salt Spring Island in Canada and I've still got a little bit left. <laughs> how's, that so, for, how's that for a start? Well, so I know you were a lawyer in Calgary. Where'd you go to school? UFC, University of Calgary Law, yeah. 
my buddy uh, my buddy Ryan Clements just became a law professor there this year. Oh, so good for Ryan. It's a great school. It's very innovative. You know, it was one of the first ones that had a 50-50 uh, gender spread in Canada. I'm quite sure. Yeah, oh, really. When I was there, around 83 or so. Yeah, he's done some interesting things. He just did a PhD at Duke on trying to figure out what to do with cryptocurrencies. He's helping the Alberta Securities Commission figure out what they're going to do and and this kind of stuff. But interesting. And you didn't talk about your music and the books and let, let, let's hear a few more of the fun things you've done. Well, you know, I've always been, you know, play, I've always played guitar around the campfire and, you know, I've, I've took piano lessons when I was a kid, but when I was arrested in Los Angeles, I had already I had made arrangements that I did some demo records of some rock and roll songs I'd uh, written and I was, you know, 40 40 well, I was 50 when we started NetTeller. So when I was arrested, I was around 53. But I was in touch with a fellow then, Brian Ahern, who's a great record producer. Uh, he was a, he's married to Emmylou Harris. for They have a child, but they're no longer. But anyways, he's produced 15 of her records. So he's a very accomplished guy in the Nashville recording, you know, cellios. But he kind of liked my stuff. So, and I was I was arrested and I was on bail and I had to stay in, you know, the, the, the five counties around Los Angeles as far as I could go. And so what are you, what are you going to do? Well, I, I lived on Malibu beach. I got Brian to come from Nashville to California and we rented a studio and I recorded a, a double CD called songs spelt like Psalms with a P on the front of it songs. And uh, we recorded 24 of my songs and no, 25 of my songs and four cover songs, 29 songs, a double CD with uh, some of the greatest studio musicians in the world. That worked really well. So in uh, 2009, they they all came back for a second try and we did just about 20 more songs with the same crew, except one. Uh, on the first crew, Matt Matt Rollins, who plays for, what's the name of the guy that's uh, the leader of, no, geez, my mind completely slipping out of me. We had Matt Rollins on the first record, great piano player in Nashville, and then but but he couldn't, he couldn't make the second gig. So it was the same lineup, except for Billy Payne, who was in a band called Little Feet, who was a famous rock and roll band from uh, southern the southern rock and roll and so we had about 40 really you know pretty not too bad rock and roll songs recorded and there there you can hear them on my website it was one of the greatest experiences of my life to be able to play with guys so if you were you know if you were bob dylan tom petty you know jeff lynn george harrison and roy orbison you know the traveling wilburys you'd probably be able to hire just about any drummer you wanted right well who did they hire jim keltner and Jim was, uh, we went, Brian took me to T-Bone Burnett's place in, in Los Angeles and to, to find out, you know, which, which way, who, where we should start with the studio musicians in Los Angeles. And T-Bone said, well, if you can get Jim Keltner, then all the other ones will fall. So we phoned Jim halfway through, T-Bone made me coffee and we're halfway through the coffee that T-Bone made. And Brian was phoning Jim Keltner and Jim says, sure, man, I got some time in June. And, and then from there, it was, you know, awesome. You know, we had Hutch Hutchison, who's the bass player for Bonnie Raitt. Dean Parks, who's played all the guitar on, a lot of the guitar on all the Steely Dan records. You know, I mean, it was just yeah. un unbelievable. I'm, I'm looking unbelievable. at this list and it seems so fun to play with people who played, for, you know, Willie Nelson and, you know, uh, all these big, Michael Jackson and, They're you know, so like good. all the Eric Clapton, all yeah. these big names must have been fun. Eric was um, in the studio right before I was. I, you know, I got well, and I guess I guess what I'm interested in. Let's start with this. You you went through this this roller coaster, and coming out the other side, you you've got some principles and, and a real uh, fierce adherence to generosity. You want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, well, it, I I was fortunate when I came into wealth, just because I was you know I was 50 and I I had a few lessons already. So I wasn't maybe quite as corruptible anymore as I might have been. I was still somewhat corruptible, but not quite. But, you know, 
I, I was, I, I bought a house in Malibu beach and then I bought a second. So I had two of them and friends had come down and visit. And, you know, I had a closet full of clothes that had like price tags on them still. And, you know, had, I drive by, you know, a Santa Monica BMW and I saw, you know, a Z8 Alpina. So I went and bought it, wrote a check and the check cleared. And I drove out in this car for $140,000. It was pretty amazing. So a lot of, and, and, you know, it's a rush to spend money, but eventually the, the, it, it, that just f- fades for me. I wasn't, I, it wasn't that thrilling to go on down to Rodeo and start spend, buy a whole bunch of stuff and go home again. And it turned, I, it became quite evident to me that the only rush that remained was, you know, uh, taking other people down who don't get to do that, let them do it and watch what happens when they, and, and I did that. And I would, we had, you know, I brought my nieces down for, they, they each went on shopping trips for their grad dresses. And, you know, you know, they were up to, you know, eight, $9,000 grad dresses <laughs> showed up for high school. So, so that was really, but, you know, the truth, the, the truth is that I always sort of was suspicious that generosity was what was lacking in our society anymore. And um, I think that it, it's, it's the cure to um, so many of the things that ail us, including most, most, and most importantly, public generosity. There's a, an ethos in the United States and I love America. You know, I, they put me in jail, took all my money, but you know, I, it's a, it's a great, great country. And the fundamentals in America are the greatest fundamentals of any country that's ever been invented. And, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of those, but there's a really interesting irony between the spirit that created America and the spirit that dominates it now. The spirit created America, the spirit that, you know, Adam Smith called called us men. You know, quaintly, he called us men. I think he meant persons, you know, but Adam Smith said persons are actually good, basically fundamentally good. And if we set them free, they will do all they can to make things better for everybody, right? And that was you know, the, the 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 idea of the invisible hand of the free market, the invisible hand first actually was, you know, if good men do things with their own stuff freely, then everybody's going to be okay because that's what good men do. They help others, and, you know, and then things have changed, right? But the idea that if you take, if you set good men free, good persons free, they're going to do really great things. That's the fundamental idea of America. Now, where are we? If we give people 400 bucks in COVID, then they're not going to work anymore. They're going to want more money. Now, let me this, I'm going to take a pause here, Jess, and I don't want us to run away. This is super important. The spirit that says public shouldn't spend, you know, that you shouldn't tax and you shouldn't give, give away money to people is exactly the opposite of the spirit that created America in the first place. If you give people money, if you give them uh, the tools of self-improvement education, if you give them medicine, if you give them fundamental capital, this is the basis capital, access to justice, food, clothing, and shelter, and not incidentally, the right to a healthy environment. If we give people that, they're not going to sit at home. They're going to go out and do stuff, and they're going to do great stuff, and they're going to do really, really great things. And that's the spirit that America was made on, and it's been corrupted by the selfish wealthy these last 240 years. And we have to take those guys down. Those selfish wealthy need need, need to have, they need to be depanted. They've done a, a number of frauds on us. One, one, one of them is that, you know, taxes, taxes can only be on income. 
Everybody knows that, right? We've known that from the beginning. From the beginning, we only, you know, they had to tax, they had to tax to raise money to get wars going, right? And so, well, how are we going to tax? Well, I know I got a good idea. Why don't we just tax income? Because then, well, you can't, you can't tax wealth. And then all the working guys are going to pay all the bills for running the government. And we get to take all our wealth and just they'll take it, they'll, you know. Now we've got the institutions of democracy protecting wealth, but all these selfish wealthy guys sitting around thinking, you know, this is a good joke because now we got all the working guys supporting the institutions that to provide the security for our wealth. Yeah. You know, I will say sometimes because we, so I have this consulting firm, we do all this, have like these, like, we do all this like leadership training and stuff like this. Right. So I've had a lot of government clients, the department of the treasury, a number of transit authorities, all sorts of folks. Right. And sometimes I do get, have a little pause of the efficiency of the folks who would be handing it out. I have a little concern with, 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 with that. But to me, one of the most encouraging things towards this is the power of example. Like you talk about being public and making it contagious to give, you know, and I look at like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett who they got enough money to do whatever they want, right? And here they go giving like the absurdly overwhelming percentage of their billions away, but not just stopping there. They start calling up all these other billionaires to join the giving pledge and they like made it cool <laughs> to give all your money away. It's fantastic. And like, it's fantastic. Like the power of example there uh, to me is, is really, uh, I don't know, it's encouraging. It's optimistic to see, you see how many people have signed that giving pledge since and how many others that didn't want to sign that one specifically, but made a similar commitment and now they start, they're going to China, they're going all over the world with it to, to cultures that were maybe less likely to just contagiously hear about it and do it. And like, these are guys who, again, could be on a beach anywhere doing anything they want. And they're taking their time to go talk other billionaires and giving all their money away. And uh, anyways, that's one of the optimistic things for me for the future. They're making Adam Smith right, right? I mean, I, in my book, All's Well, Where Thou Art, Earth and Why, Adam Smith is the guy that I quote like the most. Right. But Adam Smith was actually a very, very generous man. And, you know, that's the part of him that the uh, neocons don't really quote quite so much. <laughs> yeah. You know, you think about it. I, I ask this question sometimes when I've done some consulting gigs and I ask people, you know, when you think about because whether if, whether you want to be a trusted advisor to a potential client or you want to be a trusted advisor to your own staff and you know, generate the efficiencies that come from that, right? As I asked, as I pulled people over years, okay, I want everybody to think if you had a, you found out about a really serious problem right now and you get to call one person and ask some advice about it, I want you to think up who that person is, right? Okay. And I say, okay, everyone raise their hand who thought of their know it all brother in law. <laughs> no hands go up, <laughs> right? Every next, let's have everybody raise hands who picked, you know, the highly opinionated person who's incredibly smart, but can never, but can never actually hear what you're saying because they're too busy talking the whole time. No hands go up. You know, you think about that generosity. What? I hope I'm not talking too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But you think about like the generosity, like generosity of time to sit and listen generosity, whether it's money, opportunities. I think some of the, the biggest gifts that have ever been given to me is when somebody was willing to use up some of their social capital on me, you know, to make, an, yeah. make an introduction when there is nothing in it for them. And it's just some young kid who's trying hard, you know, and they're going to give me a leg up and there's nothing in it for them. I mean, just like, I feel so indebted because of that. And, and like, you know, I got a text like 20 minutes before this started from a kid who had interned for us. I was trying to get some commercial real estate data. And I'm just like, I'm looking at it. I'm like, man, I'm really busy. When, when are we going to fit this kid in? You know, and I'm so tempted to be like, ah, I don't think it's going to work, man. But instead I'm like, I didn't, I didn't do like probably the fully generous thing, but I was like, can you send me the questions first? 
<laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> can you send me the questions first and we can still do this, you know? Because like, those have just been some of the best things in my life when people who I could do nothing for were generous with their time to go like, hey, Jess, I think you're a little too scattered. You got lots of great ideas. Why don't you do them like dominoes one at a time? You know, things like this. That's a really interesting thing to point out, Jess, because that, and it proves one of my points. And that is that, that the most, the most valuable thing we can receive from somebody is their attention. And think about what that means. It means that that thing that we have the ability to pay attention is the most valuable thing. And everybody has that. You don't have to be rich to have that. Everybody has that. Like I said at the beginning of my book, the most valuable things that have that have befallen me have fallen into my lap no more than they have into everyone's. Yeah. And that is the ability to be awake. <laughs> you know, being alive to other people. I mean, I, I being an ambitious guy and, you know, trying to make enough money to like cover up my own self-image issues from being a kid. And like, you know, I moved from Edmonton where it was cool to like, you know, in the late eighties, like wear neon and skateboard. And I moved to this, like from, you know, metropolitan area, a little over a million to farm town of 3000, 3,500. And it's cool to wear plaid and play football. And I didn't do those things. And all of a sudden, I, all of a sudden I wasn't, I didn't matter anymore. I was one of like the faceless masses of kids. Right. And like that stuck with me. I like, I became the best snowboarder, anybody in our town. I'm first kid to do backflips first, you know, cause then I would matter cause I did something right. And later I'm like, well, if I become the richest person, anybody in my high school's heard of, then I'll matter. You know what I mean? Right. And it's funny that you talk about the spending thing because it's a pretty big letdown. Like I've done broke. Broke isn't all it's cracked up to be either. Okay. No, no, <laughs> right. No. But, but like, I remember being like 24 and I bought this big like S-class Mercedes. I just thought, I, was, I mean, I just thought it was the best thing ever. It's like 48 hours later, I mean, you know, bumper to bumper traffic on the five freeway coming from San Clemente up to Irvine, Orange County, California. And nobody cares. Nobody cares I'm driving this car. Like, I'm like, where are the fireworks? This was supposed to be so great. Yeah, and yeah. like, I sold that car like a couple months later to do an investment. Cause it was like, man, what a letdown. Nobody, nobody cares. It wasn't that great. I like had it so worked up about how amazing it was going to be, you know? Yeah. One, one nice car is a good idea. Six, Listen, seven nice cars. No. <laughs> if you have, if you have to drive cars, I'm all about Mercedes. Okay. Sure. But, but like my, my latest one, I bought an E-class that somebody really old had, had had for like, I don't know, eight years or something. It had like 40,000 miles on it or something. And I got 75% off. I thought it was great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I bought a, I bought a AMG once and I let somebody else have five years on a lease. And instead of paying 130, I paid 30. I'm yeah. all about that. Right. But, but man, I just thought it was going to be better to make money. And I didn't make money like you made, but I was, you know, I, I became a millionaire at 25, lost it all, made it all back again, <laughs> lost it all. Hence the reason I'm going to buy commercial real estate next time. But but it just wasn't all it's cracked up to be. And then doing child rescue and like helping yeah. get these kids from traffickers. Yeah. That was like better than any snowboarding. That was better than making money. Like that was yeah. the biggest high I've ever had. That's yeah. Good for you, Jess. That's beautiful. It what? is. Yeah. You can't, those are, those are treasures that, that you can't, you can't buy. You can only decide that's what I'm going to do. What, what have been some of your most fun generosity helping things? I really liked meeting Dalai Lama. That was a trip. He's a pretty cool guy. I had a, a soul patch there and he grabbed, oh, I got something new here, eh? <laughs> That's funny. I, I felt like patting him on the head, but I, you know, that, sure, I, you know, I mean, we, we, there was extravagances that were entirely meaningless that were a lot of fun. You know, I, you know, we had a, I took my niece, I took my nieces to Rodeo Drive to buy graduation dresses and, 
they 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 were in you know the the you know they're in the store and they were having a hard time deciding and I said no no let's start a pile you know we'll get that now let's look for something else I said we wound up spending like thirty thousand dollars and that was a trip they got some beautiful clothes right and I but I'm gonna say we 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 supported something that went on in 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 Tibet it was the the four great rivers there's four there are four rivers that originate in Tibet that that serve a third of the world's population water. Yeah, and we that and we, we were that was the communist government there that we in Tibet that you know I had to, that kind of rankled, but you know I asked Dalai Lama about it. He says, no, no, it's good. You do good work in Tibet. It doesn't matter who you do it with. But and then we went there and we went to Bhutan and we met some people there and that was that was one of my most wonderful things was going going there and meeting those people and eating the food that they eat and you know finding out what it's like to be. Uh, you know that primitive sort of socioeconomically, but so so beautifully advanced in in other important ways. I got a great book that's a it's a picture of portraits of people from Tibet. You know what they look like? They look exactly like Navajos. And so mm. and and they and I figured this out. If you I'm gonna, I'll go quick here. If you if you walk ten miles a day in a year, you can walk thirty six hundred miles. In ten years, you can walk thirty six thousand miles. That's enough to walk from Lhasa in Tibet to Los Angeles back to Lhasa and back to Los Angeles again. So I think there was a lot of traffic those 14,000 years after since the, you know, we didn't, they didn't just like come over once, you know, there's a lot of people going back and forth and they were looking for more than food. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. And so, but anyways, so we have this community in North America. Now I see that Deb Holland wants to, wants to use the, the name tribes, tribal, to signify them in Canada, we call them First Nations, as you know. But so, and then, and they've got this thing, like the only thing that matters in their culture, you know, is the, the land that we were born on and the Great Spirit, those two things. And that's exactly what the people in the Himalayas are about. You know, that same ethos, you know, it's all about, it's all about the land that gave us birth and the Great Spirit. And then in, in you know, in, in North America, we got all the honkies, you know, we got all the white guys from Northern Europe. In Asia, they've got the Han Chinese. And, you know, we do all the math and all the accounting and all the engineering and all of that stuff. And we need, we, we need in our world, Jess, to, to relearn stuff from, you know, from the tribal people, from, you know, from the, the First Nations about the importance of earth that gave us birth and the great spirit, which I consider to be, you know, just like consciousness, that gift that we can give each other. I take my consciousness, which is a miracle. Think about the moment before you die and how much you would pay for an extra 15 minutes. And, and I'm giving that to you now and you're giving it to me. That's a treasure, and we need we need to do we need to do both. We need to build really good bridges and schools and hospitals, but we also need to sit still for a moment and understand the miracle that it is to have consciousness. No, I feel like I got kind of an appreciation that my my dad, who unfortunately was killed in a car accident about four years ago, huh. he he had been he taught survival class for a university out here in Utah, where he take these college kids out in the desert for a month and teach them how to live in the desert, and. He, he really studied a lot of, you know, the, the, what Americans call Indians down here. Right. And, and just the way they did things and stuff. And, and that's, you know, I heard a lot of those stories growing up and we took care of a cabin in Waterton National Park. And so we were out there constantly in the summers and hiking and look, and he was just constantly pointing stuff out and saying, you know, here's how the Blackfoot did it. Here's how the blood did it 500 years ago, you know, and stuff like that. And it's it's interesting because I didn't really get a lot of that in the you know in the media in my other interactions with folks and I don't know it, it's it was an interesting perspective to kind of get those little you know sprinkled in through through my childhood. You know, it's not it's interesting and it, but you know in a way 
that perspective is the one that's the most rewarding, right? Because yes, we, we've already talked about how money and the rewards of it pale very quickly, you know, it doesn't take long at all for you to tire of your Porsche. Now you want a McLaren, but the, <laughs> right. But the, the, the dividends of consciousness are invaluable and they're available at every stop sign, Jess, and every go sign yeah. <laughs> and, all day and long. Yeah, and I'm I'm probably more of like a hardcore capitalist than you in the sense of I I'm at that stage in life where I'm still building, you know what I mean, and and recovering whatever and and you know like I do look at like child rescue right now and there's I've got all these opportunities to help kids and our biggest limitation right now is money, right? Some of those kind of things. But but then I also look at times when I get things out of whack and I you know, I got four kids still at home and the times when I overwork instead of being the dad that I always wanted to be, or, you know, right. And that getting that, getting that balance and figuring out the proportions is, has been, well, it's probably a lifelong journey for most of us. But one of the things I'm interested in about you is I think about, you know, a lot of times I try to bring up my, like losing my fortunes that I made a couple of times in my twenties. Right. Because I'm so tempted not to, and to cover it up. And I have this shame about like, well, shouldn't I, if I was smart enough to make it, shouldn't I have been smart enough to keep it, you know? And, and I'm always so hesitant to bring it up, which is why I try to bring it up to overcome that, you know? And I appreciate the way you can talk about your interactions with the FBI and go to jail for 45 days without like this. I don't get any sort of sense of like self-labeling or I don't get much shame out of you about it. And, and I think that's helpful for the rest of us to look at like, anyways, I think that's an attitude that's helpful for looking at mistakes in it. But I think so many of us struggle to really get that, get to that place about it. What do you think, what do you think it is that you've done different or what advice do you have about how you, how you're able to view that without, without maybe some of the feelings others of us would, would feel about ourselves having had that in our past? I think, well, I, I'm not too sure about others because I, I'm, I'm hardly an expert on myself. So, <laughs> but honestly, you know, I think, I think if I did have it all to do over again, I wouldn't do much differently, but I, except I would do this differently. I would have been more careful. I, I wasted a lot of money. You know, I wasted a lot of money just throwing it around on extravagances and, you know, stupid investments just because, you know, it got me, I don't know, new friends or, or you know, whatever. And I, I would have been, my, my friend Bruce is a, is, is a very, very, very successful guy. He's an investment banker and Bruce is a, shops at Value Village. <laughs> it's still a great sport for him to get by on as little as possible, you know? And I think, you know, if I had it to do over again, I would be a little bit more like that. I think I, I'd yeah. be a, a little bit more smartly generous and a little bit of a smarter spender. And when I, when I talk about smart, smartly generous, I, you know, I, I gave, I gave money to people who were, you know, I don't want to be too judgmental, but it, it was a waste to, to give them money. It didn't do anything for the world. You know, and I, and I would have, you know, I, it, it took me a while to figure out that, you know, it was, that it was not endless, you know, well, you know, the, the night I got arrested, my net worth went from, you know, 300 and some million to, you know, I don't know, maybe 45 million or something like that. I don't, and then a lot of that money wound up getting spent too. But I think I would have, first of all, I think I should have been on, out on my motorcycle when the cops came. And I would have headed up, you know, through the, the, the Dakotas and into like Saskatchewan and, <laughs> and then I still would have had all that money. But I, I think the, I think the money is in, 
in my in, better in my hands than in the hands that are currently spending, like you alerted us to a little while ago. Sometimes the people that are spending money in America now are not of, of the highest quality. But I think if I had it to do over again, I, I would not have come to America that one time, and I would have kept all that money for myself, and I, and I would have done you know a lot more good with that money than. Then, then I, you know, I did quite a bit of good, but I could have done about four times as much good if I, yeah. <laughs> if I hadn't taken yeah, that so one trip. I get that. You know, um, the chairman of Viacom, Sumner Redstone, who's passed away now. Yes. yes he gave Sumner, us a million yeah. dollars for our charity. And and then I went to, I, I got an appointment to go thank him in person. And he gave us another half million. <laughs> it was great. But and he said, by the way, you know, you, do you know who Bill Gates is? It's like, yeah, we, we know who Bill Gates Because he's got a lot of money. You should call him because he could give you as much as you want. We're like, that's great. That's great advice, Sumner. Do you, could you set that up for us? Or what do you, you know? And yeah. But, but no, that ran our charity. Him. Yeah, that ran our charity for like six or seven years. But what I know now, looking back, I have a ton of regret of how much more we could have done, mm-hmm. you know, with what we know now. Mm-hmm. And I guess life can only be lived forward. And so- you know, I, I plan to give a lot more than I plan to give a lot more to my charity than Sumner ever did. You know what I mean? And this time I'll 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 spend smarter for it. Right. But but I kind of want to go back to the same question of what are your feelings or what's your strategy or why do you think it is that you can talk about being arrested in the FBI, not from a place of shame or like a negative self-image and you laugh about it where so many other people will be trying to pretend it never happened? I'm a little bit reluctant to talk about that. And I'm okay. not going to tell you the whole story, but I will tell you this much. I don't think I've ever done anything that I've, I, of all the times I've been arrested, I've never been arrested for anything that was immoral. Mm. You know, I was arrested for selling pot and acid when I was a kid and I wound up doing eight months for selling, you know, hippie dope to cops that were dressed up like hippies. And then, you know, you know, in my adult, later adult life, we did NetTeller, which is an online money transfer business supporting the online gaming industry. And that was considered to be criminal unless you were a government and then it's good tax policy. You know, all of the, all of the states except one in America operate gambling. And I think, you know, I think, well, does Utah operate gambling now? I don't, I, they didn't uh, use to. I don't know, probably. Yeah, yeah. but anyways, it used to be Utah and Hawaii didn't, all the rest did. But so if you're a government, it's good tax policy. If you're an individual, it's racketeering. So I never really felt too badly about those things. The reason I'm reluctant to, you know, I, so I'm more or less a political prisoner all the times so I've been to jail. The reason I'm reluctant about it, Jess, and this is, you talked about people making mistakes and being, on, and being merciful with themselves about it. And that's super important. I made mistakes, but they weren't the kind of mistakes that, that uh, it's proper to be shamed, ashamed of. But, you know, there, there is no shame in feeling shame. It shows mm-hmm. enlightenment to feel shame. If you've, if you've done somebody wrong, it takes, it, it takes a real, you know, Adam Smith would have said, man, I'm going to say person. If you've done somebody wrong, it takes a real person to, to own that. And, you know, and, you know, forgiving yourself is not like forgetting, you know, you, you, you carry, you carry forward that you've, we carry forward that we've done that. You know what? I've done evil things. I just haven't been arrested for them. So it's the same lesson, right? You know, I've, I've shortchanged people in relationships, you know, I've done, you know, I've done, you know, whatever. And yeah, we all make mistakes. And, and we should, we should have mercy on ourselves and, and do better because, you know, who knows how much time we got left. Right. And you know, so it's a lot better to, even if we only enjoy ourselves, but better if we enjoy ourselves and also help other people to enjoy themselves too. 
I'm going to leave you with one thing here before I don't know how much time we got left here. But when I was in the environmental racket, one of the things that happened to me, you see all this trouble in the world, you know, how are we supposed to like find joy in the, in the, in this being thing, this consciousness thing? How can we find any joy in that? You know, when it's all that's wrong in the world. And so here's what I said. So, you know, why do you think it's, why, why, why is it so important to conserve this stuff anyways, to conserve what for? And they said, well, that's a dumb question. Everybody knows that. Okay. Well, give me the answer. I said, What's, why is it so important? Well, and then they're kind of scratching their head. And I say, isn't it because so that our descendants can enjoy it too? Yeah, yeah, so our descendants can enjoy it too. And I said, now I've got them, right? So now it's like, so, well, then it's not about the conservation. The, the, the conservation is extrinsic. The intrinsic value is the enjoyment. So yes, work all day, work all day, Jess, to conserve the environment and then work all night to show your young people how to enjoy it. So you've got two responsibilities. Yeah. You know, I know we've only got about 10 minutes here, but, and in like, I don't know what this is, 575 episodes. I haven't talked about this before, but, but my, my dad passed, you know, dying yeah. that car accident. He was like 63 or something, you know, like Jeez. my mom thought she had another 25, 30 years with him, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And all of a sudden it was like, life didn't feel, I didn't feel invincible anymore. You know, I was like, man, I better get busy living. Right. And one of the things that's been the best, you talk about the nature stuff. We we were living just north of Salt Lake City, you know, kind of 2 million people metropolitan area there, Salt Lake Provo. And I talked my wife into letting us do an adventure year out in the mountains by our business partner, Lindsay Hadley and her husband. And we rented this house in a cabin outside of Park City. And, and I may helped her make some friends. So I talked to her into letting us live here. We built this house. We're like, you know, the back of my neighborhood is one mile from the Uinta National Forest, which is 2 million acres. And I tell you what, I find myself not going to work meetings I didn't need to go to and staying home with my kids in the forest. And, you know, we go backcountry snowboarding constantly and all summer we're, we're out hiking because, because we're seven miles from that. We're like an hour from the city, 45 minutes from the city, but we're, you know, seven miles up the road if you go the long ways, right? And it's been great to actually enjoy my life is this like semi-hermit, like semi-forced hermitness. Yeah, that's so it's, wise. It's, it's inconvenient to go to the movie theater and it makes some business meetings annoying and it's extra time to get to the airport or whatever. But in other ways, it's like my 14 year old boy dream of being able to live on the side of the mountain. I wanted to snowboard, you know, and it brings me back to my parents taking me to Waterton National Park constantly. You know, my mom's a nurse, but has refused to work on Thursdays because for 35 years, her and the mountain mamas are hiking every every Thursday. There's not snow. They hike somewhere. And most of the winter, they'll cross-country ski or something on a Thursday. That's wonderful. And such a great example for me because it's it's helped me want to do that with my kids. And yeah. that that connection of a parent instead of everybody's on screens all the time and all the things that, you know, very easily tempt us in the society not to connect with our own families, right? I understand that really deeply. I just warn you one little thing. When kids are looking at their phone at the bus stop, you don't know. They might be reading James Joyce. <laughs> Actually, okay. <laughs> This is one thing that I like, I, so that's totally something my parents and grandparents did well about the, like, let's go be in nature together. If I can toot my head on one thing, it's I got my kids into audiobooks and uh, I'm a real audiobook nerd. And that's just been great. Like even my kids who've had learning disabilities and stuff and they're failing sure. out of this class. Sure. And then in other subjects, they're testing two and three grades ahead. And it's that like the love of learning by letting them pick the books and teaching them how to like speed the books up so they can get through them faster and consume it. And that's been like one proud dad moment for me. You know what, Jess, that's a, 
uh, it's propitious that you've mentioned that because I have just now begun reading my book, All's Well, Where Thou Art, Earth, and Why. I've read the introduction in the first chapter and it'll be uh, into the audiobook guys in, I don't know, a few, few weeks, oh, probably, yeah? you know, a month maybe or so. But I have, I have some people who are, you know, they, they'd like to read my book, but they're, you know, have, you know, they're reading challenged, right? For, for different yeah. reasons, you know, right? And kid, so for, for half years, my kids I've have this eye thing where their eyes don't match up. They, they don't focus on the same spot. So words look like they're dancing while they're trying to read them. Yeah, it's there's, tough, lots of man. there's lots of different things that make reading tough, but I'm, I'm really, really enjoying reading to myself, reading myself to myself. <laughs> I'll make, sure you get, I'll make sure you get a, an audio call. Oh, I'd love that. As, Thank as you. As soon as we're finished with that. But well, yeah, I know this is mostly a business podcast and we've kind of covered a different, a few different things, but I just want to bring up that Salt Spring Island, where you're at, Vancouver, you know, off the edge of Vancouver Island. I, we said this before we started, but I think that might be the most beautiful place in Canada. And tell us why you love being out there. Cause I love visiting. You get to live there. Well, I, you know, is this, is this where I pick up my computer and turn it around and show you the waterfall I'm looking at <laughs> over there? We have herons, we have eagles, you know, we have, you know, there's seals. I take out my rowboat and the seals come and say hi. Says sea lions, you know, there's all kinds of critters here, minks. You know, there, there aren't there aren't any mountain cougars or, or bears or stuff like that here, but they, they come, they swim across rarely, but the, the peaceful, I don't, I don't need much busyness in my life anymore, Jess. The thing that's hard to achieve in our society is peacefulness. We have this media that we're talking on now. And I have, you know, like my friend Jim says, well, for a retired guy, it's your sure hard to get on the phone. And, I, and, and he doesn't mean that's because I'm out in my rowboat because in my rowboat, I've got my phone, but no, I am, I, I, I can be as busy here as I want to be and as unbusy as I want to be too. But it's a treasure to be out in nature. It's not, you know, I can be in, in any downtown I want, you know, and, and I love, I love big downtowns, you know, I, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to go on, you know, New York's one of the greatest places I've ever been in my life, but I'm really glad I don't have to be there right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm really fortunate that I can be here. We're, we're, we're doing pretty well in Canada compared to how you, you guys are. Have you noticed that COVID has been the most successful in the places where the invisible hand waves the loudest? Britain and America. It's a freedom thing. People want, you know, there's this fake argument about contagion, about, about how you do, do you step on my freedom. You know, we've, we've stepped on your freedom when we tell you, you can't drive a car when you're drunk. What, what, you know, how, how come you don't complain about that? But you know, there's a, there's a funny thing about this. I, I think, you know, in my ethos, I'm just going on quickly here in my ethos, it's freedom fundamentalists, free speech fundamentalists. What's that? Those are, free, those are people who are proponents of freedom, but don't honor the responsibilities that come from freedom. They're the, they're the proponents of wealth, but they don't honor the responsibilities that come with wealth. And, you know. Well, it makes me, it, it does make me interested in like Andrew Carnegie's book, you know, Richest Man in the World at His Time. And he wrote that book, The Gospel of Wealth, about giving it away, which both, you know, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and others who signed the Giving Pledge have cited, you know, and it, it it's interesting, you know, that's, that's one of the ones on my reading list, you know, is to think about that more deeply, you know, maybe to part with, I would be interested, you know, for those who maybe they do have ambitions to, to make a whole bunch so they can give it all away. I'm interested in, in just one lesson for entrepreneurs of 
you think about the things that you have done that have been very financially successful. What's one piece of advice that, that you would that you would give to folks who, you know, who are trying to do more entrepreneurially? I'm reading a book now that's written by George Saunders. He teaches short stories at uh, Syracuse University in New York and is the greatest short story writer in America right now. George, I highly recommend him. But one thing he says is you're getting had, you're getting made when you read a story and the guy knows where it's going to end, but he hides it from you. And, it's a, and it shows a lack of faith in yourself. If you've got a really good idea, put it out there. Go there. Tell people what the idea is. You've come up with a great idea. You have the capacity to come up with another great idea. Don't worry. You know, share your great ideas and let other people go. Pretty soon that comes back to you. And you're smart enough to come up with one great idea. Don't worry. You're smart enough to come up with another. And just get your good idea out there. And then you'll get recognized for your good ideas. And, you know, don't try to milk all the money out of them. You can just keep getting good ideas. You get your best ideas when you're rowing a boat. I hired a guy to look after me here at Salt Spring Island, Jeff, and his job was to maximize the amount of time that I get to stand out in the ocean in my rubber boots playing my mandolin. Why? Because those are the times that I get my best ideas. Our, our, our creativity is our, that that's the diamond in the mine. And trust trust yourself to, to, to trust yourself to shut up and let it come to you. Maybe I'll leave with one more book recommendation then. Do you know this Ryan Holiday book called Stillness is the Key? I'm writing it down. <laughs> it's it's really great. Just goes through all of these great achievers and great statesmen and and all sorts of folks. And it talks about things that people hardly ever talk about, like like the the times of what they do to get away. And some talk about riding motorcycles, some talk about running, some talk about being out in nature. And just these routines of getting away, getting away and having that quiet time. And, you know, that's not something the business media talks a lot about, but yet high achiever after high achiever, you you see it in their histories. So anyways, it, I found it an inspirational book. May I say just quickly on that note, if any of your watchers are tempted to read my book, All's Well, Where Thou Art, Earth and Why, one of the things they'll read in that book is my short little aphorism I've come up with. It's be still yet still be. Mm. So being still isn't being asleep. Being still is being awake. Be still yet still be. It's <laughs> great. Well, this has been a very lively conversation, my friend. I hope I didn't uh, talk too much. No, what are you talking about? We had you on so you could talk. This is what this is the whole, we don't, there's nothing to the show except talking. That's the whole purpose. Congrats on the book. Congrats on uh, spreading the spreading the gospel of generosity. And, and thanks for making time to do this. Very nice to meet you, Jess. Thanks for making time. When you pay attention, you give me the best gift you can. <laughs> Bye, everyone.